0: Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in a a couple of different places if you want to go ahead and and make your way there. It's going to take us a little while to get there, but we're going to be in Romans 3 and Zechariah 7. Romans 3 and Zechariah 7, if you want to kind of find your way there and tap, turn, and whatever it takes you to get there, or you can read along the screens. I think both of those passages are, are going to be up there. Uh, last week we began with this understanding of moving into Advent and we, we began in creation because in creation we recognize that, that this uh, incredibly transcendent, all-powerful God invests himself in the finite. He invests himself in the details. And in creation we know and we went over the fact that humanity rebelled. We lost this right fellowship. We lost this right standing with God on the basis of sinful acts, right? And so this, this thing happened. it fractured our relationship with God. And what we see in the unfolding meta-narrative, this story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, is the unfolding saga of how God brings righteousness back to humanity so that humanity can have right relationship with God. Now, one of the first places we see this begin to unfold and begin to recognize the trajectory of kind of where God is moving and what he's doing and and what he's kind of orchestrating in our hearts and doing between our relationship, us to him, is in the man Abram. Now, when we're first introduced to Abram, you're in Genesis chapter 12, and he's just kind of this nobody from nowhere, and God has a very clear word to him. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land I will show you, And I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. Why? That you may be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll dishonor those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see that Abram got his family together. He and his wife and those around him gathered and they went out in search of this land that God would show them, this land that God would send them to. And in the midst of this journey, this, this amazing thing happens. God has told him repeatedly, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have a tremendous number of descendants. But he's got none. He's older and older, and, and he's got none. But when we come into Genesis 15 and verse 6, and, and I just want to kind of recount this short conversation that God has with Abraham. Let me start in verse 5. He says, and he brought him outside, and he said, look toward the heavens. And number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, if you live in the city and and the city lights kind of drown, you can look up and you can count a couple of stars. But if you live in the country and the city lights aren't producing kind of noise in the sky, you look up and and it is something amazing and tremendous. We're caught up in this, this, this worship of God because we see the expanse of the heavens far beyond our ability to take in. And God communicates this tremendous message to him. If you can number them, number them. So shall your offspring be. Look how Abraham, look how Abraham responded. He said he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It is on the basis of Abraham's belief in God, which is met, followed up by his obedience to God, that reckons him, finds him being described as righteous. Now, from this this kind of forefather of Israel, we see that the nation begins to grow, and it begins to move into kind of its own, and it begins to struggle. And so we see prominent leader after prominent leader raise up, make good decisions, make bad decisions, and then we find them in the midst of the exile, or we find them in the midst of the exodus. And so while they had been enslaved in Egypt, God takes them up from there and he heads them in the direction of the promised land. And as he's taking them, as he's transferring them from slavery into this land of abundance, this land flowing with milk and honey, God is forming and fashioning a people. He is displaying to them what he is, who he is, and we can only describe that as righteous. So he gives to them his law. He displays to them his character. He is forming and fashioning their hearts, and he is bringing righteousness out of ruinousness. He's taking a bunch of ragtag rebels and making them righteous. He's making them worthy to display his name. He is forming and fashioning their hearts. But over and over again, we see this cycle of doing well and doing poorly of being orthodox and obedient to God and then rebellion and carelessness moving away from God. But all the while, God does not change. His heart for them is that they would adequately, beautifully display his grace, his wonder, his majesty and be righteous, that they would be a people worthy of his name. If you follow the narrative, if you follow the story, you'll recognize that God repeatedly sends prophets to the people and and in fact tells them, be righteous. Be righteous. Be right with me. Let's have a relationship together. But repeatedly, they pursue their own passions. Repeatedly, they pursue their own ends. They want fame. They want money. They want land. They want power. And so ultimately, God sends them into exile. He sends them into Babylon. And from Babylon, we see this amazing account from the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel speaks to them from the midst of the exile. For the midst of recognizing for the next 70 years, we'll be here in Babylon, and then one day we'll return. And when we return, he's going to change us. And look at the change Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 36. Starting at verse 25, God speaks to the prophet. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. So God looks at these people persistently set on rebellion, constantly with their hearts moving towards the ditch, constantly enmeshed and mired in sin, the stench and stain of life, wearing it on themselves. And what does he say of them? Some I'm going to cleanse you. Imagine that if God looks down and he sees your heart and he sees the decisions you make, And this promise and the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God, that as he sees you in the midst of your struggles, his word to you is cleansing. You rest in the midst of the exile. You rest in the midst of 70 years of separation from the land, from the promise, in your mind, from God's favor and his blessing. And his word to you is, I will return you. I will restore you. I will cleanse you. But it's not just this outer stain that he talks about removing. It's not just this outer stain that he talks about alleviating, taking from them. Look at verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit, and I will put it within you. God recognizes their inability to keep his word, their inability to be righteous, doesn't merely stem from an outward failure to do the right thing but it's an internal issue. It's an internal issue. It's this inward heart motivation. It's this inward heart relationship with them and with God. God's heart has not changed for them. God's opinion has not changed of them, but he recognizes they need a heart transplant to affect this relationship, them with God. So he says, I'm going to Put a new heart, I'm gonna put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove your heart of stone and from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. It's amazing, isn't it? And when God looks at their heart, he describes it this way. He says, This heart of stone This this dead thing inside of you, this thing that's not vivifying, it's not giving you life, it's not enhancing my relationship with you. It is is enabling your sin, but not enabling, not moving you towards righteousness and right living, to believe God and to move forward in obedience. But look how he's going to accomplish this right heart beating true always. Verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You and I, the average Joe on the street, we have no ability to be righteous in and of ourselves. We have none. This is incredibly relieving, right? Right? It should be this incredibly comforting thing, and at the same time, this incredibly frustrating thing. There's this this call towards righteousness, believing him and moving forward in obedience, but we have this recognition that I have no ability to accomplish this on my own, lest he change my heart, lest he bring his spirit to reside inside of me. And he has this promise, and he says, I will do it. And so there should be this expectation amongst them that when they come back into the land, that when the time of the 70 years expires, that their old necrotic dead hearts, hearts of stone, would be changed, would be transformed, would be made new. The Tragedy sets in. Devastation sets in. When we pick up Zechariah, Zechariah, if you remember back to when we studied Haggai together, they're back in the land. They are building the temple, and they've been there for a couple of years by the time we pick up in chapter 7. But despondency is kicked in. Frustration is kicked in. Disappointment is kicked in. They're frustrated that they're not seeing more things take place. They're frustrated that they don't see all of these these things coming to be. And this amazing thing happens. This group of people we're going to read about from Bethel, about seven to ten miles north of where they're building the temple, they come down and they set up this visit. Look what he says. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day in the ninth month, which is Chislev. And now the people of Bethel sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. So you have this group of people who are described elsewhere in Scripture as being worshipers. This group of people come down and they want the favor of God. They want the favor of God. Is this not something that we can resonate with? Is this not something that we can say, I too want the favor of God? But it seems that within this, they also have a sense that they deserve the favor of God. And so they come up and they, they say to the priest, to the house of the Lord, and to the host and to the prophets, and they ask this, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? This is the message they communicate. Hey, look, you guys are back and you're building the temple and we think that's awesome. And it's getting close. It's not done yet. But we see real promise in the progress you've made. And so here's the question. And here's a testimony. For 70 years, us, we have been faithful. For 70 years, Since you ended in exile, for 70 years, since the temple fell, for 70 years we have moved forward in obedience to God, commemorating, memorializing, mourning over all this that has happened by observing a fast. Let me pause while you're impressed. 70 years we've been faithful. 70 years we've been sad. Seventy years we've done the right thing. The question is, on the basis of our former faithfulness as portrayed in God and our fasting towards him, do things have to change? Are they about to change? And will we be rewarded for what we've done? So God speaks to Zechariah. He says, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for those 70 years, and he asked the most damning of questions, was it for me that you fasted? We are so often caught up in doing the right thing, or uh, worse yet, being seen for doing the right thing. I want to be seen as righteous. I want to be seen as a person who repeatedly does the right thing. I want to be observed. I want to be known. And then, in some sense, I want my record of, of right obedience to God to curry favor with God. So Zechariah asked him the question. He said, what was your internal heart motivation in the midst of your obedience? Notice, he does not discount the fact that for 70 years they were faithful. 70 years is a long time to be faithful. 70 years is a long time to have any habit. And for 70 years they've been faithful, but he asked them this critical question that gets to the heart of the issue. He says, was it for me you fasted? And when you eat when you drink, do you, do you not eat for yourself and drink for yourself? He exposes the hypocrisy. Their hearts were never broken for God. They were devastated at the loss of the temple. They were devastated at the loss of the land. And fasting showed everyone around them how upset they were, how broken they were. Nobody questioned that they were sad. Nobody questioned that they were upset. But their worship of God was a thing that that didn't exist in their lives. What they had was self-pity. And what they desired was a recognition by everyone around them. So when they came to Zechariah and said, Do we have to keep doing this? They wanted a pat on the back from him and a recognition from God. They did not desire righteousness. Zechariah gets to the heart of the issue and then he comes around and he gives them the same message that had formerly gone forth from the prophets that their fathers had received. What Zechariah wants them to understand is that their outward obedience to God in fasting and mourning was no different than the disobedience of their fathers. It was no different. It was just a different shade, a different category, a different look of disobedience. So he says this, he says, Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous? He says, Do you remember when things were going great? Are these not the same words that God sent by by his prophets to communicate to them? When her cities around her in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And so he's communicating this message to them. He says, Render true judgment. In essence, these these men from Bethel who came down are receiving this word of rebuke and correction. They think their outward manifestation has been a display of righteousness, but he's going to show them they are moving in the same failures. And so he describes righteousness in a few ways. He says, render true judgments. There's the ability in rendering judgments that, that, that they are passing, that they are fleeting, or that they are faulty. We render judgments on the basis of what it will get me or how I will be perceived on the basis of my judgment. And so it shifts according to the audience that I'm engaging with. And so he goes to them and he says, you need to recognize that justice does not have a sliding scale. And if you're going to be righteous, then you have to be all the way righteous. Then you have to be fully engaged because you are obeying God and doing what he says. He says, render two judgments. Show Kindness and mercy to one another. This idea that this, they are to evidence, they are to display this unfailing love towards one another. So God's not calling them to outward manifestations of religiosity. He's not calling them uh, in our day merely to, to avid or perf- perfect church attendance. He's calling them to recognize the need for a heart fixated on him. A heart that beats like his does a heart that is caught up and captivated with faithful love look what he says in verse 10 he says do not oppress the widow the fatherless the sojourner or the poor this really gets to right to the middle of where we are most of us don't outwardly look to oppress someone right Like if you own rental houses and you didn't likely start those rental houses so that a poor person could move in and you could become this Ebenezer Scrooge. I want your money! (laughs) Right? If you did, that's creepy and you probably don't have many repeat renters. But most of us don't go out of our way to find some poor or marginalized person to oppress. What do we do instead? We look at the poor, we look at the marginalized, we look at the ones suffering and we turn the other direction. We change our gaze. We look a different direction. And we're all culpable and we're all guilty. I go yesterday to get lunch at Chick-fil-A and, and then I ran to grab coffee at Starbucks because we had this awful thing called a doubleheader in basketball. <laughs> and while we're driving there, there's this woman who's sitting out and she has a sign. And, and you know the sign, right? I have a need. You can meet the need. It's raining. It's cold. I don't even see her anymore. We don't even see somebody in need. We see somebody who has a motivation to take something from me and put it in her account. And and, and we we breed in kind of this motivation. She's going to spend this on something that would not be good for her. She doesn't really have kids. The only thing I really know about her right now is that she is cold and miserable, Because if I wasn't in my warm car, I would be cold and miserable. She should go get a job. If she had a job, she would have money. I bet she doesn't have a job because she's hooked on something. I bet she's stolen stuff. And by the end of the time I leave Lowe's parking lot, I'm calling the police. I'm like, there's this lady who stole stuff, and and she's chasing people with a knife. Okay, she dropped the knife. Now she's sitting We have this ability to assign blame to people who we don't even know their story. But when we read this verse, we recognize that that we too, I myself am caught up in this same engagement of quietly oppressing people when God repeatedly calls me to kindness and mercy. Kindness and mercy and radical engagement will cost you something. But that's what it is to be close to the heart of God to lay everything on the table and say, you can have it all. I'm willing to pay it all. Because this is what it is to be in relationship with you. He says, let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Don't look at your brother or your sister around you and say, I wish I had what they had. And then set your heart on purposing, endeavoring to get that. Be kind, be loving, don't oppress. But look at how they responded. They responded in three ways. Verse 11 says, they refused to pay attention and they turned turned a stubborn shoulder. It really kind of gives us this picture of an ox. And so you've got the yoke on it and and you're walking behind it and, and you're getting to the end and you're expecting to make this turn so you can come and you can plow another row and it just locks up. This animal just locks up and you're exerting energy and effort to try and get it to turn, but it is locked up and it's overcoming all your abilities to change its direction. And this is what God says they do. And this is what God says we do. We tighten, we stiffen our necks, we turn a stubborn shoulder to the movement of God when he calls us to engage in righteousness. He says they stopped up their ears that they might not hear. This is just the ridiculous example of putting your fingers in your ears. When you put your fingers in your ears, it obstructs your ability to rightly hear. If you have kids and, and one of them is annoying the other one, uh, they, you might find that what they'll do in a response to not be able to hear the annoyance of the other one is to put their fingers in their ears and then go blah, 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 And now they're annoying everyone. But God says, this is what you're doing. You don't have a desire to hear me because you recognize that a movement in righteousness is gonna cause you to surrender everything. said so they made their hearts diamond hard. Why? Because they didn't want to hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts that he had sent by spirit through the former prophets. So Zechariah moves and he says, look, this is what they did. They made their hearts hard. This is why Ezekiel gave this prophecy in the midst of the exile and he said, God's going to take your heart of stone, your diamond hard, hard-heartedness, and he's going to remove it. He's going to take it out of you because he can't use that. And he's going to put within you a heart of flesh that beats for him, that it's sensitive to the needs of others, that is sensitive to the direction that he has you moving and desires and lives for and hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so the question becomes, how do we become righteous? How do we become righteous? Before they went into the exile, when they were still dwelling in the land and living in their arrogance and living in their disobedience to God, God sent this amazing prophecy through the prophet Jeremiah to give them this sense of expectation, the sense of wanting, the sense of waiting for how he would affect change for them, how he would change their hearts, how he would direct them to himself. In Jeremiah 23 and verses 5 and 6, He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Listen to this. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. If we want to be righteous, we're never going to get there on our own. There is never going to be enough of doing the right thing, of saying the right thing, of of keeping yourself from doing the wrong thing over the course of your life to account, to accord righteousness in you from God's vantage point. This is the great difficulty. Everyone around you can look at you and can evaluate your life. And you might ask them, you might submit to them the question, am I a good person? Am I a righteous person? And you can fool them without limit. And you can fool yourself beyond any ability to disbelieve your own testimony. But righteousness, true righteousness is never the production of our hearts. It's never the production of our merit. True righteousness, which is what God requires, only ever flows from Jesus. Paul gives us the most beautiful, poignant, impactful, terse, short packed statement on righteousness and our relationship to it, and it's found in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And so in essence, he says this, look, you need to understand that the prophets, that the law, that they are testifying to, that they are in some sense portraying righteousness. But now... In the present, when he's writing to them, and now today, he would say, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, displayed apart from the law. So we say, how? In what way has this happened? And the response is, the Lord is our righteousness as displayed in Christ who has come. Christ who has come, who was born in a backwater town to a nothing family to have no significance. Christ who has come, who is raised in relative obscurity. Christ who has come, who has displayed perfect righteousness of God and who suffered for you. This is how it's manifest. He says righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been manifested in Jesus. And the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction." Look at verse 22. It's this faith tether with Jesus that affords us the possibility of being seen as righteous. It takes righteousness to have a right relationship with God. And we get this through Jesus. There's this understanding within those Paul wrote to, and there's this understanding even within our day and even within the church that there is some merit God is evaluating my salvation on that if I am a better person than this person over here, if I do more right than more wrong, he is more well-pleased in me. So I add my righteousness to his. The two groups God is looking at, he says on the one hand, he says, the Gentile that has no history, no lineage of faith, and the Jew who has outward responsibility and adherence to the law, there is no distinction when it comes to receiving righteousness. With God, there is no distinction. So I think of my failures. I think of my shortcomings. And I think of people I know in my life that are just kind of on this level of being so much better than me. They're kinder, they're more gracious, they're more affable. They're just more likable. And it blows my mind. But when God looks at us, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, he makes no distinction upon the outward things that everybody else would metric us on. Every relationship you have, someone is evaluating you. And they are asking this question, should I be their friend? Should I stay in relationship with them? And the relationship with them is going to change on your likability and your compatibility with this person. But God looks at you and says, you're completely incompatible with him. You're completely broken. Completely sullied. Your life has been devastated by sin. And he says when it comes to righteousness, there is no distinction. The only distinction is Jesus. Because he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's both devastating and beautiful. There's no need for us to sit and seek to justify ourselves before God. Have you ever been caught in one of those lies that you're really just trying to be kind and to spare the person's feelings, but now they've caught you and you're there? And so you enter into this endless series of justifications, or maybe as a child you've been caught doing something, and you're like, but I was curious, but I was just trying to help. I didn't mean to crash your car through the house. I was merely trying to check the mail and to do it quickly. And our minds, our, our endless series of justifications move us closer to being found as right. But scripture tells us that all have sinned and that the stain of sin separates us from the love of God. The stain of sin separates us from the love of God, it drives a wedge between us and God's perfection. But look at how he goes on in verse 24. Even though we have sinned and fallen short, we are justified by His grace as a gift. It's this amazing thing that God looks at me, a sinner far from Him. In Ephesians, He says, I am dead and I don't desire Him. In Colossians, He says, I'm in the dark and I don't want light. And He gives me this gift. It's not a gift I desired, it's not a gift I ever thought I could get. It's the gift that we never deemed ourselves worthy enough to ask for. It never made any list because it never entered into our mind that we could ever be worthy, that someone would ever do something so good for us, but we have been justified, we have been reckoned righteous Is a gift of His grace. God's unmerited favor finds itself at home in our hearts. But it gets there through a very particular conduit. And notice that the conduit that the road that this grace travels by, the road that this gift travels by to find us, is not us feeling sorry. It's not you being broken as if you're somehow working redemption in your own life through your outward inclination or inward brokenness. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus paid our debt. Jesus paid our sin. Jesus paid for our brokenness. Jesus, our righteousness. It goes on, he says, it is Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There are two ways the Old Testament shows sacrifice. So as the people of God are traveling through the Exodus, there are two ways that primarily he keeps before them a need for sacrifice on the basis of their sins. One is expiation, the other is propitiation. So one is the idea of the scapegoat. And so this goat that is brought in and the sins of the people are confessed upon it and then it is sent out of the area where they're living. They drive it out from their tents. They drive it out from their camp. And the other is propitiation. And this is the idea that when it is brought in and the sins are confessed over it, that its life is poured out, that it dies. And when God speaks of Jesus affording us forgiveness, when the Bible speaks of Jesus being our redemption through his blood, this is the picture it paints. That you and I are guilty concerning sin. That you and I are not righteous. We're so incredibly far from righteousness that we don't even desire it. I want something fixed, but I don't want to have to change. I want things to be better, but I don't want to have to expend any effort. God, recognizing our waywardness, recognizing our, in some sense, laziness and propensity to fall over and over and over again, right in the ditch. God took our sin, and in Jesus, he became flesh. And in Jesus, he was raised up in perfection. And in Jesus, Jesus takes on our sin. Every wayward word you could ever utter, think, feel, or imagine. Every awful and terrible thing you could do in the past, in the present, and in the future, Jesus takes it on. He wears your sin. And hanging on the cross, he is punished For your sin. He dies for your sin. And he's raised again so that you might never be enslaved to it again. And this is what he calls you to. Do you believe? Do you have faith? Not in your goodness not in your ability to never sin again, but do you trust in his goodness? Do you trust in his faithfulness? And do you rest in his righteousness? the passage goes on to tell us that all of this was to display, was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God effectively looked over the sins of your past and he extends to you an opportunity of forgiveness and of redemption. And all this was to show his righteousness so that at the present time he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In Advent, we recall this expectation that God would come in and change hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh, as we read in Ezekiel. In Advent, we recognize the privileged position of the Christian to be the recipient of the salvation afforded us through the sacrifice of Jesus, and we are reminded of our faith tethered to Him. But in Advent, those of us who have yet to submit ourselves to Jesus still see it as far and distant. But I want you to hear this. God absolutely loves you. And he has absolutely fixed his purpose and his plans and his design to afford you an opportunity to know him to be cleansed and made whole that this god desires to take from you a heart of stone to give you a heart of flesh and in preparation for your move to him he sent his son jesus to die for you to die for your sense of inadequacy to die to your fallenness, to die for your failure, will you have faith in Jesus? Jesus in Matthew 5, 6 said these words. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. For us to be satisfied, We must crave, we must desire, we must long for the coming advent of Christ, our righteousness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and opportunity to worship you. God, I pray for those who are struggling with your word. Feel unworthy. To receive the forgiveness afforded them in the person of Jesus. That they would focus on the goodness of Jesus, not their fallenness. Recognizing that it is faith in Jesus by which they are redeemed, by which they are set free. Father, we pray for the Christian. They've been moving and operating in, in, in outward displays of righteousness. They have entrapped themselves to religiosity instead of being caught up in a love relationship with your son Jesus. God, would you set them free? Would you show them they always have been? Would you cause your love for them to rebound in their hearts and to spill over to the lives of those around them? You're so good to us. You are good and do good. So we submit these things to you. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen.